2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it to turn to. And we thank you, Lord, that it doesn't change. And it's all that we need and more every single day, every minute of our lives. And Lord, we know you want to fashion us and make us more like Jesus through your word and bring us into maturity. And we're so encouraged, Lord, that you want that more than we want it. And so now as a family, as we... As we sit at your feet and learn from you and your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that he would illuminate these things to our hearts so that we can be better disciples, so that we can grow into maturity and we can bear fruit, fruit that remains. So we ask, Lord, that you'd set this time aside for your purposes. We pray, Lord, that you would be exalted and worshiped. Lord, as we study your word, that you would receive it as such because we do so, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are almost finished with this great book uh, of 2 Timothy. We only have one more chunk of verses. Lord willing, we'll get, next to, get to next week if the Lord tarries. May get raptured before then. That'd be great. Lord, come quickly. That's what we're praying all the time. Spirit and the bride say, come. But so in, before then, we are going to just do these, uh, cover these eight verses today. And the context, as we've been looking at through this whole book, is a context of difficulty. Paul's in prison. It's his last letter he's going to write to anybody. And he's writing it to Timothy. He's writing it from a, a, a dungeon, the Mamertine prison there in Rome, it's not a fun place whatsoever. This is completely different than house arrest that he wrote Ephesians, where he, when, where he was at when he wrote Ephesians and the other prison epistles. This is rough. This is very rough. And he's writing to Timothy to pass on the spiritual baton, so to speak. He's writing the things that are most important for Timothy to hear. And he's, he's wanting Timothy to endure hardship through godly character. That's the theme of the book. As I've mentioned, 1 Timothy is how the church should function. 2 Timothy is how Timothy should function in the context of godly character. Last week, we saw Paul encourage Timothy to endure godly character in two ways. To continue to walk in Paul's example and others' examples that Timothy had enjoyed in his life, and also to continue in the Word of God. Very encouraging to me as a pastor to have Timothy, who was a pastor, have to be encouraged in those things. It's encouraging. It's a reminder to me that we never outgrow the need for uh, the fact of perseverance and difficulty and to feast upon God's Word and to walk in, in godly example. Because Paul looked back at chapter 3, verse 14. If you want to look back there real quick, he said, but you must continue in the things which you have heard and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He's talking about himself. He's talking about other people that God had placed in his life. And he's saying that you know from whom you've learned them. You know those, those people that he's put into your life, Timothy, are those that God has placed in your life. They weren't just anybody. They're people that God handpicked for you. And last week we talked about how God handpicks people 
to be in our lives to help us to have a good example of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we can't miss those people. We have to recognize that, that, that they're from God and we appreciate them and listen to what they have to say and to pray for them and support them, but mostly to follow it in their example. At one point, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Every single one of us should be able to say that. We shouldn't be saying, don't follow me, but, continue, but, but, but follow Christ anyway. We should be able to say, follow my example. You don't have to be perfect to be able to say, follow my example. Because God hasn't called us to be perfect. He's called us to be faithful and consistent, but not perfect. And all of us, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they have, we have the capacity to be able to be faithful and to be consistent among God's people. And thus, we should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm saying it to you today. Follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm going to follow you as you follow Christ. Because we mutually encourage uh, and are used by the Lord in one another's lives uh, and it's, it's used in a significant way for his purposes. I am greatly encouraged by you. God is using you in my life. And you may not think of it very often, but I want to tell you now, you, God is using you in my life to bring me more and more into maturity. And it's happening for one another. So Paul mentioned that in chapter 3, verse 14, related to keep in mind from whom you've learned these things. These are people that God has placed into your life. But related to the word of God, in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said this as we saw, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul said, not only have you had godly examples in your life, and you need to remember those people and to, to note them and walk in their example, but also God has put the word of God into your life from your infancy. And we saw that the word childhood means infancy. I mean, actually, it's even used all the way back to being an embryo. So as far back as Timothy could possibly remember, the Holy, the holy Scriptures, and he does call them holy, have been placed into his life for a purpose and for a reason. And he's saying, Timothy, you can endure hardship because of the word of God that's been sown into your life and the godly examples that have been placed into your life. And so it's incumbent upon you to continue. That's the key word, as we've seen. Continue, continue, continue. It's a lot, of, it's a lot diff, more difficult to continue in something than, than to just start it. I'm an expert at starting things, uh, but I'm not that good at continuing things. I'm growing in that. And finishing things is even harder. Uh, but that's what God has in mind for us, is for us to continue to finish well. And he's going to get into that as we go through these verses because Paul did finish well. Then we saw Paul further elaborate on how the Lord uses the word of God in our lives in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. He said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for tra- instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So he's saying the word of God's been placed into your life from your infancy. And it's all that you'll ever need it to be. And maybe Timothy didn't know the full extent of the value of God's word. Obviously, you know, Paul wrote this so that he could know these things. And, you know, perhaps it was just to remind him. But maybe some of these things were the first time he'd heard one or two of these little aspects of God's word that's valuable, that God used in his life. And basically, Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, look, you're not going to find any other source of, of information or, or any other source of, of uh, character building and, and the, the thing that makes us grow that's going to be better or superior, more preeminent than the word of God. It's not out there. And we can fall into that trap to think that there's some other better source of information. You know, someone mentioned a few years ago how the Psychic Friends Network, remember with uh, Dion Warwick, uh, how they, uh, they went out of business and they, they're, they're, they asked a quote from them, you know, what, what, uh, what happened? You know, you went bankrupt and everything. And, and one of the words out of the, one of the, what they said was that, well, we had no idea that we, did, we couldn't see it coming. <laughs> you know, it's like, aren't you supposed to see things coming if you're psychics, you know? But it just shows you the folly of, 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 of error and so forth. But there's no other way that we can get truth. There's no other thing that will build into our lives that which needs to be built so that we can become mature 
uh, disciples. And so he reminded us that the ultimate goal as far as God's concerned, and that's helpful to know, what's God's goal related to my life? What's he aiming at? He's aiming at Christian maturity. And no one is saying that to the extent to which God wants them to say it related to leaders in the body of Christ. It's getting harder and harder to find leaders that will say God's goal for your life is Christian maturity. We hear a million other things about what God's goal is in, in, in your life, but it's, it's Christian maturity. That's, that's God's goal. Romans 8.29, we always quote it, Romans 8.28, that all, God works all things together for good and so forth. But Romans 8.29 says that the good that he speaks about in verse 28 is that we would be further conformed into the image of his son. So that's the reason why he works all things together for good, not just for any reason and not for us, for our comfort and, and our ultimate, uh, you know, hoarding life's resources on ourselves for sure. It's to make us more like Christ. And the road to being made more like Christ is a road of difficulty and hardship and being pruned and being broken and, and being humbled. And that's not popular today. And, and because of that, people are missing the mark related to what God has in store for them. So it's very important that we see that. Now notice in verse 1 in chapter 4, Paul uses the imagery of a courtroom. He says, I, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So the imagery is a courtroom. Now, I don't, I, I don't really remember Perry Mason all that much. I mean, there might have been reruns and, and so forth. I remember the people's court. Dun, 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 dun. And Judge Wapner was there. And he, and he just laid down the law. I mean, I think that he would probably, you know, uh, be a little bit intimidated by Judge Judy. I mean, Judge Judy doesn't play. I mean, she's just, you know, just laying it out. But the scene is a courtroom here, and the, we see that by the word charge. Look at the word charge there in verse 1. That is a, a legal term in Greek, and it means to testify, and it's the kind of testifying that happens on a witness stand. It's, it's as if Paul's on the witness stand. It, Timothy is there listening, and Paul has, is, is there ch- uh, testifying to him what he's about to tell him. And we also see it by the word judge there in verse 1. He said, but that God will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So the, the picture is uh, that of a, a courtroom. And so Paul is telling Timothy that his life and ministry is very much watched by God. And that's kind of what we need to see with, with chapter, or verse 1 rather, is that God is watching Paul's life as he's testifying to Timothy what he should do in verse 2 and beyond. But also, he's reminding Timothy that God is watching your life. And that's important for anyone that's, that's, that teaches the word and serves and, and uh, you know, cares for God's people or, and, and anyone else even beyond that, is to remember that God's watching our lives. And for anyone that teaches the word of God especially, it's important to remember that God is the first audience. You know, there's a plaque that I want to put up here. Eventually, I'll, I'll do it. That talks about a stricter judgment for teachers. Because I want it before my eyes when I'm up here. That, there's a, that I will endure as a teacher of God's word a stricter judgment. Because he definitely doesn't want his people misled. But also I wouldn't mind having up here the reference to uh, him, you know, the judgment seat of Christ and, and so forth. So he is, he is the first audience. He's assessing our church you know, in Revelation, he assesses the churches there. He's watching everything that happens. He's watching the teaching. He's watching everything. And it matters to him what is being communicated. And, and that's why he's laying these things out to Timothy. Timothy needs to be reminded here that God is assessing his sermon way before anyone else is assessing it. And he's looking at the heart behind it. He's looking at the motivation before it. Uh, for it. He's looking at the preparation time that went into it. He's looking at him whether he's holding something back because he's not you know he wants the approval of man he's I mean he's looking and assessing everything and so the first audience is God and he will judge the living and the dead and so Timothy you know needs to remember that that all these things need to be uh, weighed and prayed about and be very careful about how he presents uh, the teaching that that God has entrusted him with 
So he, he says that, and he says also in verse 2 as we see what he's really trying to get to and what he's testifying about on that witness stand. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and, and, and teaching. Now you've heard me mention this in the last week or two because we talked about the word of God and all scripture being given by, is given by inspiration of God and so forth. And this is a very favorite passage of mine. There's so many of them. But I love the fact that he tells Timothy, before God, God's his witness, preach the word. He doesn't say preach from the word. He doesn't say preach about the word. He doesn't say launch from the word and tell a thousand stories and jokes and so forth. He doesn't say preach yourself. How important is that? Very important to not preach ourselves. In the context of evangelism, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. God has to be the subject when anyone teaches the Bible. The person can't be the subject. And they can't be saying things that draw attention to themselves to the neglect of keeping God the subject. He doesn't say to preach politics. I haven't said anything about candidates or who's running. And we should vote, I believe that. We should be salt and light. We should be an influence in our culture. This isn't the time for politics. This isn't the time for current events. He doesn't say that either. Preach current events. He doesn't say preach self-help principles. He doesn't say preach theories or opinions or speculation or worldly wisdom. There are so many things I could spend our time with up here. That would, wouldn't be worth our time because what could be better than God's eternal word? And I know, I'm, I know we don't really have choirs, but I'm kind of preaching to one in theory right now. I know that you know that. That's why you're here. But it's good for us to see that, that God's okay with reminding Timothy, who already knew this inside and out. He already spent years with Paul. How many times do you think Timothy heard Paul say, preach the word, Timothy, when you go out and share that home tonight? Stay true to the word of God. Don't, you know... You need to say everything that you need to say related to the word of God. Don't hold anything back. Timothy probably heard this over and over and over again. And Paul still says in a very difficult situation in that prison, Timothy, be faithful to preach that word. Just don't preach about it. Don't launch from it. Don't simply talk about it and reference it and read a few verses and never come back to it. Preach the word itself. The word doesn't contain the word of God. The word is the word of God. It's, it's, it's completely the word of God. All of it, cover to cover. Genesis to Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All is the key word in that verse as we looked at last week. Paul met the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Very important. What's the, what's the whole counsel of God for us? Genesis to Revelation. Every single verse, every single part of every single verse, we need to teach all of it. And so my, what I do up here is not because I think it's a good idea and it's just something I prefer. I'm commanded in verse 2 to do it, to preach the word. And it, it's not just limited to teachers, it's all of us. We're told in Peter that if any man speaks, let him speak the very oracles of God, the very words of God. We need to be speaking God's word. And I don't mean in a metaphysical way where you feel like words are things that are physical things out there and they're doing, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about speaking boldly what God's word says and being extension of him in this world by having the words of God on our tongue and on our hearts to be able to share at any moment. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. And that's speaking of uh, being willing to do it when called on and be prepared to do it when called on, to be ready. I know there's going to come a point in time where God's probably going to switch the text on me as I come up here. And he's just going to say, there it is, teach it. And I'm going to have to, and Dave Miller will be very happy to watch me just uh, fold under the pressure or, or to be challenged in that way. Uh, but it's true that God stretches us sometimes and we need to be ready at any given moment. So very important for us to see that. There, there's something to be said about when you teach the whole counsel of God you get the, all the content in the, in the proportion that God revealed it. So a person can't major on that which God doesn't major. He can't minor on that which God doesn't minor on. And he, has to, he can't have 
you can't hide from certain things in the Bible. He has to teach everything that, that is there. And that's why I believe he says, convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and teaching there. Because when, if you're trying to attract people, and that's your ultimate goal, and you're trying to build the church, despite the fact that Jesus said he would build his church, you're going to say all kinds of things that are appealing to people, that people want to hear. And so I think of convince, rebuke, and exhort that part of that verse most, almost every week that I'm up here. I think of that. I can't, I can't say, well, this is kind of uncomfortable for us and we're not going to cover this or that might make people offended. I have to teach the whole scripture because God isn't worried about offending us. Have you noticed that? He isn't really too concerned about something hitting our pride or showing us that we're not right. And convince, what that means is that we need convincing of the hard truths about ourselves. And only the word of God tells us the truth about ourselves. Where else are we going to find the truth about ourselves out there? It's, it, it's getting harder and harder to find. And God says, usually the enemy is not the problem. You're the problem. Your sinful nature is the problem. And you need to be confronted about things. And, but if we don't go through the word of God and preach the word, then, and we're just preaching about it or touching on it or launching from it, we're not going to cover those things that are uncomfortable. And if I'm trying to reach a bunch of non-believers that are here, a bunch of quote-unquote seekers, then I'm not going to say sin. I'm not going to say re- repent. I'm not going to say that this is sin or, or God's standard is this. I'm going to run away from those things because I don't want to make people mad. You know, the largest church in America is like thirty or 40,000 people. Huge. And it would, it's very difficult to ever find that guy saying the word sin or repent and, and he's just giving these self-help principles. And these people, it breaks my heart. And I'm not, I'm not just, that's not hyperbole. I really mean it. It breaks my heart as a pastor to see those thousands of people sitting there with their Bibles open. And they're just being starved. And they're not getting fed. They have the Bibles open for a reason. They want to get fed. And he's just saying all this fluff and all these things that are, have a man-centered approach. And he's not rebuking. He's not rebuking anybody. He's not exhorting anybody. He's just saying all the, the, the flowery, nice things, the, the desserts. He's feeding the desserts. He's feeding the, the, uh, the pies and the, and the cakes and the pudding and all that spiritually, so to speak. And he's not giving the vegetables, like Pastor Chuck says. The vegetables and the meat are all the things that we, we need to have. They're not necessarily something we always want, but we need to have it. And so if we're going to be made into disciples then we have to be able to have all of what God's word says. Now, he adds long-suffering and teaching here. Why? And I believe it's because all of us are at different levels of growth. So some of us are going to have to hear these things over and over again. And as he's leading in the sense of telling people what they need to hear from the word of God and personally, I mean in person, as he talks with people, there are going to be people that are, that are maybe fighting against this or don't want to hear it and, or, or they're, they're not making progress how maybe other people might think and they're going to have to be patient. We have to be patient with people because we're all growing at different rates and we're all dealing with different things. Sometimes we have a checklist of the top 10 things we think God's going to knock out in every believer in that specific order. And then we're we're, we're thinking a person has come to know the Lord and they've known the Lord for a few years and, he, and they're still number three on that list. And, and, but maybe God has a whole other checklist that you don't even know about and that I don't even know about that he's dealing with that person on. And, and your number three is God's number 27. <laughs> and he's going to get to those things. Uh, but we have to be patient with that. So you can't have a person that teaches the whole counsel of God but is not patient with how it's working in the lives of people. You have to have someone that's patient, that's gracious, that is encouraging people. You know, exhortation isn't just, and we went over this when we looked at spiritual gifts, exhortation isn't just busting people on what they're doing wrong. Exhortation means to stir up, and it has an element of encouragement to it. It's not just, this is what you're doing wrong, it's, you can do this. You can obey God's word. You can rely on God's grace and his power, and you can obey what he's telling you to do. And it's, there's an encouragement. That's why it builds up. If it, didn't, if it didn't do that, it wouldn't build up. And God hasn't called us to convict the world of sin. He's called the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. And as it's been said, you make a lousy Holy Spirit. And so do I. 
You know, he is very good. It's his ministry. We can't usurp his ministry, get in the way of what he wants to do in people's lives. He does a much better job of convicting people than we ever could. Now, the thing that this speaks of here, this list of things, is it kind of, kind of makes it obvious that we as his sheep need to be willing to have those things be done in our lives, whether from a teaching. And I see people come in here sometimes and they don't, they're not interested in being confronted by God's word at all. They want 10 principles to a successful whatever. They're not interested in being confronted by God's word, and they don't last very long. 20 minutes in, it's like I'm doing Chinese torture on them, Chinese water torture, or some kind of, they're dying back there. I just want to say, okay, you can go, you know. I don't want to torture you. But not everybody has that in mind. They don't want to be changed by God's word. But we have to be convincible. We have to be rebukable. We have to be exhortable. Those probably aren't words, but you get the idea. You have to be willing and be teachable and be humble to let the Lord speak to you through his word and through other people. And so that's important for us uh, to remember. He says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now he's been talking about false teachers. We looked at that last week, but now he's kind of looking at false learners. He's kind of letting Timothy know there are false teachers and that's a problem, but there's also going to come a time where increasingly there's going to be false students or false false learners and and he wants Timothy to know that you need to be busy about these things because you have an opportunity to do that right now, but that opportunity is going to get grow less and less available to you because people's hearts are going to not turn the right direction and they're not going to want to be uh, all these things that uh, the word of God does. And so we're, I think we're definitely in that time now. I think that more and more and more people will not endure sound doctrine. In fact, in some circles, the word doctrine is a bad word in churches. <laughs> like, Don't worry, we're not going to get into doctrine. Wow. You know, we're supposed to be engaged in not just any doctrine, sound doctrine. And it's very important that we uh, have a steady diet of that. But you notice here that the motivation for their own wanting these teachers is in verse 3. He says that they don't have, they have, an, uh, they have their own desires. They don't have a desire to please God. But what their desire is, is to, be, is to be, have the things that they want for their own life. Their desire is not for God. Their desire is for themselves. They want to build their own kingdom. And I really want you to know what to look out for, to how to identify. Not here. Hopefully you're not going to see that here. But I mean, anywhere else that you're you know, watching TV or you're visiting somewhere. And you're, I want you to know what, what, the, what the most subtle, subtlest, dangerous thing is and how you can tell if this is occurring here where people are getting teachers that that are telling them what they want to hear and usually the common denominator is that the teaching is man-centered it's focused on you getting everything in the world that you may want and and God's all for being blessed he's all for prosperity but it's how he defines being blessed and how he uh, defines prosperity it's a whole different way than the world describes it and so if it's man-centered and not God-centered. And if it's built on all these things that focus on me and me and me and my and, and, and my things and my you know, uh, success and all these things, instead of it, the focus being on God and, and what Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and deny himself and follow me. That's what he's called every Christian to. So any teaching that's just not focusing on that and not focusing on growing in holiness and maturity, but has the focus on the person. What I mean by that is God doesn't want people thinking that they can just live the life that they've always lived and then just add a little bit of God to it, and a little bit of principles from, from God, and now they're going to be successful in the life that they already have. That's what's popular out there. Take my life. I don't even have to become a Christian, really. It still works. I mean, that's a sad thing. When you take Jesus out of it and it still works, it's probably not a good thing. But if I just take my existing life and add a few principles to it, not dying to self, 
not seeking God, not humbling myself, not walking in the Spirit, not communing and obeying and giving my life away, but it's just my same old selfish life, adding the principles of, you know, from Scripture to make my life, quote-unquote, successful, and then my life is the same as it's always been, but now there's more of a, a, a possibility, they say, to be more successful in life. That's not, that's not what, what God has for us. He said if anyone wants to save his life, he'll lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake shall find it. That's Jesus. So he, he's not going to do anything that makes us save our life. And he's not going to for sure add quote-unquote biblical principles to the life that we're trying to save and to make it more prosperous. He wants us to lose that life and surrender completely over to him because he, he has an infinitely better and superior plan to my life for my life than I could ever have. But that's hard to hear. And he says that that's, people aren't going to endure that. And they're going to look at the word heap there in verse 3. That speaks of a lot. You know, yesterday at the men's breakfast, there was a lot of heaping going on. Heaping of food on plates. And, you know, it's a, it speaks of a lot. And it, it also speaks of that there'll be many people that are willing to take that place. Where they could, they'll, they'll say the things that those people want to hear. And, and so that's where it comes down to biblical leaders that are called that tell the people what they need to hear instead of what necessarily what they, what they want to hear. And, and that's a true leader, godly leader, that, that will do that. Now Paul contrasts Timothy with those people in verse 5. He says, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So he says, but you, in the beginning of the verse. He's contrasting there. He says, be watchful in all things. In other words, spiritually have a heads up. Have a heads up spiritually of what's going on around you. You know, leaders have, have to deal with all kinds of things, and they have to have discernment and wisdom about what's going on in situations. And, but all of us can just drop the ball in that way and stop paying attention. So he says, Timothy, I don't want that to be about have your life be about that and and he says i want you to be careful and perceive these things it's true for all of us we're supposed to be discerning of what's going on around us and not have our head in the sand about what's going on spiritually in our families in our spheres of influences at our job in our country in our city any we're supposed to know what's going on spiritually what the needs are where god's leading how he's moving in an area we need to be paying attention to those things and he says also to endure afflictions and as we've seen through this whole book he's trying to get timothy to endure afflictions through godly character. So he's still saying, keep, keep on keeping on, Timothy. Keep on being faithful. Do the work of an evangelist. I don't believe this is a specific calling that he had or a specific gifting. I think he's saying continue to bring the gospel before the lost people. And it is work. Jesus said that there's a lack of workers in the harvest field. That there's nothing wrong with the harvest field. It's perfectly fine. But there's a lack of workers and even leaders can forget to continue to preach the gospel and keep the gospel before not only people in their personal life, but also before the church, that we need to preach the gospel to people. We need to keep bringing that, that uh, gospel before lost people all the time when the Spirit directs us and be willing and ready to do that. And he says, fulfill your ministry. No autopilot or cruise control, Timothy. Don't just put on the the cruise control and just be content with wherever you're at. You need to keep going forward in the things of the Lord. Keep growing. Continue in the example that you've seen. Continue in the word of God that's been planted in your life. Fulfill your ministry. Paul's at the end of his. He's fulfilled it. He's at the end. He's going to say that in a moment. And so all of us have a ministry. All of us have a calling Ephesians 4 says that the leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry. Equip the saints. You are the ones that do the most amount of ministry. And the leaders just equip you to help you to do that. So all of us have a calling. All of us have a ministry. But we can stop working in our ministry. We can neglect our ministries. And God says, no, that's not what I have for you. What I have for you is for you to be complete, like we saw last week in verse 17 of chapter 3, so that you can be equipped or outfitted for every good work. 
for everything that God has for each one of us, he says, I want you to continue in that and fulfill it. What a blessing to be able to get to the end of our lives and be able to say, I fulfilled my ministry. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, I fulfilled my ministry. It's, it, it's, it's completed. What a great testimony. And then we'll get to hear what Jesus wants to say to us more than we want to hear it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And, and so that's what we're focusing on. But what can get in the way is fear, you know, unbelief, the cares of this world, fear of man, sin. There's a whole list of things that compete against us fulfilling our ministry. And we need to watch all those things and guard those things and ask the Lord for help so that we can continue to serve the way he would have us serve in faithfulness. Now he says the, this, his ministry is fulfilled in verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. It's almost like Paul is saying, I'm at the gate. I have my boarding pass. I'm waiting for that plane to come. So my departure will take off like he's at an airport. <laughs> and he's saying it's coming. And he says, I'm being poured out. And I'll notice the word already there in verse 6. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And a drink offering was an offering that was given even before the law of Moses. And they would pour out the wine over the altar, and it was a sign of worship to God and being sacrificial because wine was valuable. Just like the sheep and the oxen were valuable, it, that's why they, it was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for them to give those things. So they would pour out this, this wine offering, this drink offering, and it was a sign of worship. And so Paul is saying, it's already happening. But it, and I think he's talking about the chain of events had begun where he's going to, you know, it's going to culminate in his martyrdom. But I also believe that it's talking about that he had already died a long time ago. He had already died. He was already a dead man. He'd settled that already. He'd said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a well-known verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What can you do to a man that's already died? I mean, there are threats to him. We're going to kill you, Paul, if you don't shut up. <laughs> I'm already dead. I already died. I'm a new creation in Christ. There's a point in, in Acts 20, when I, I mentioned before, about when he's telling those Ephesian elders how he didn't shun to declare the whole counsel of God. He was there for three years in Acts. There was a point at which he said to them this. He says, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race. And he's going to talk about race, his race in a minute. My race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he says, none of these things move me because I've already died. And when we received Christ, we gave our lives to him so that he can do with our lives anything he wants to do with our lives. And that all the way goes up to being martyred. And, and, but we have to recognize that every one of us has a unique ministry, a unique calling that he has. But we're working from already having died. We're already dead. We've already... The old man is gone, and we've given our lives over to him. We've been bought with a price. Our bodies are not our own anymore. Our lives are not our own. So Paul has been ready all to die and leave this world all the way through his ministry. And that's why though none of these threats meant anything to him, because he had already died. So he's telling Timothy, you know, I'm, I'm already being poured out. This is already starting to happen, and my departure is at hand. And then he continues in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was a sports fan. And here he uses a fighting or a, you know, boxing or wrestling or whatever uh, illustration and a track illustration here. He says, I've fought the good fight. I have also kept or finished the race. And all three of these words, if you notice in verse 7, are past tense. Fought, finished, and kept. 
These are all in the past tense. He's already finished. He's, it's over. His ministry has been fulfilled. And he wants Timothy to finish well too. The very cherry on the top of, of his ministry is to encourage this young man to finish his race well. And he does that for each one of us today. Some of us may be at the end of our race. Maybe the Lord's going to take us home very soon. I don't know. Any of us can go at any time. But we have to keep in mind that each one of us has been given something to do for him and to serve in his kingdom, and he wants us to finish well. Anybody can start something. It's entirely different to finish something and finish well. Now, I think of Pastor Chuck Smith. God used him to start the Calvary Chapel movement in 1965. And next month, we're going to have these new documentaries that came out, DVDs that show the whole story of the Calvary Chapel movement. I want you to see that because I want you to see our, our, our heritage, a small part of our heritage, but it's our heritage. And, and so in 1965, he started that ministry or the Lord started it through him, but he'd already been serving in ministry for 17 years before that, banging his head against the wall, trying to grow the church, trying to make things happen. Every few years, every two or three years, he'd have to leave because he'd run out of sermons. He had no idea he could go through the Bible. And he started feeding the sheep and started pouring into their lives. And some of it for very selfish reasons, as you'll see in the DVD. He wanted to be able to surf in Huntington Beach. Oh, if I teach through this book, I can stay longer here. I like it here. And God used even his desire to be close to the beach in having him discover all about verse-by-verse teaching. But he's 85 or 86, or I don't know how old he is now. He's still preaching. Three times, four times on Sunday and all through the week at different places and on the radio and all of that. He hasn't slowed down one bit. He is a model of finishing well. And it's been a good example for all, first of all, for all of us pastors that are watching his life that that's what it looks like to finish well. And I'm thankful for that because I can, I can quit real easy. I could not finish well uh, just like anybody else. And so it's a great example for us. Pastor Chuck has fought the good fight. He has almost finished his race, and he's kept the faith. And so often God wants to use us to be an example of faithfulness in other people's lives on how to finish well. So very important for us to see that. Now, verse 8, he says, finally, now he's not even done yet, but that's a preacher. You say finally before you're done. Uh, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also for all who have loved his appearing. There are two main words for crown in the New Testament. One word is used for a king, to put a crown on, on, on a king's head. The other word is used for a, the, the victor of a, of a competition. Back then, they didn't give out medals in the Olympics. They gave out crowns. But, and he uses the word for a victor in this uh, and it makes sense in this, this text here, and it makes sense because he's talking about the good fight and finish the race and so forth. So he's very precise. But it's a picture of a, a reward and a blessing. And, and not really a reward for us because, I mean, it is a reward technically, but we know it's all because of him that we get any reward. And we're just going to cast it at his feet, as we're told, and just say it's all because of you. It's just going to be worship. But it's important for us to see that Paul didn't say it's just for leaders here. He says this righteous judge is going to be watching. And again, he's bringing the courtroom into focus here. And he says, not to me only, but also to all. Notice the word all in verse 8. To all who have loved his appearing. Each one of us are going to stand before Christ. Real quickly, I want us to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you can, don't have to hold your place in Timothy because we won't return there. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want us to look beginning at verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul, speaking by the Spirit, says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, and let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation 
with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear. For the day, notice that he says, you know, capital D, day. That's the same as in our passage in 2 Timothy. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on, or, or if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In Corinth, in the center of town, there was what's called the Bema seat. And it was the seat where the, those that were in authority would sit and they would, they would do two things there. They would give rewards to those that uh, would win in their competitions. They had a competition that was similar to the Olympics that was very popular back then. And they would have these competitions and then they would be crowned at the Bema seat in the center of town. But also it was a place where officials would render judgment on things. And that's and, and in the original language, he speaks about beam, the bema there. And so Paul knows that these Corinthians know all about this bema seat. And he uses that to show that we're going to stand before another bema seat. We're going to stand before the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about back in 2 Timothy chapter 4. To stand before Jesus on that day and give an account. And again, he didn't just say it's him, all those that love his appearing, which is us. Each one of us, and it's good to bring this back to before our view occasionally because it's sobering and it's meant to be sobering. That each one of our lives, we're going to stand individually face to face with the Lord Jesus and give an account for our lives. And, and so we think, well, is this deciding heaven and hell? No, that's, that's the great white throne judgment. We're not at that judgment being judged. That's at the end of the millennium. Uh, after, when, when, uh, after everything's done, that's, it's before eternity gets going and we have the new heaven and so forth. This is something different. This happens at the time of the rapture, I believe, while the, the world is going through the great tribulation down here. And we're going to stand before Jesus and, and give an account. Now, so heaven and, heaven and hell is settled for us. That's not going to be the issue. He says there in verse 15, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we're going to be saved, obviously. But it's standing before him and giving an account for our lives. And everything that's not done as a result of the Spirit leading us and not done with the motivation of love is not going to stand that test. And the picture is when you bring metal and you put it in the fire and the the impurities get drawn out and it's purified in that sense. That's the picture. And he has the fire illustration and the whole thing. But it's meant to be very sobering for us. We always, sometimes I, I, I am grieved when it's spoke of as just this reward ceremony and everybody is completely happy and joyful and celebratory and so forth. That's not the picture that I see here in 1 Corinthians 3. The picture that I see is sobriety, where I'm standing before him and he lays out my life and I have to give an account for everything that I did, if I did it in love or not. If I didn't do it in love, it's just burned up. If I did it for the wrong motivation, and that's really what he's testing, the motivation. What motivation do we have? For, did I do things because God was calling me to do it and I had a love for his people and he was leading me by his spirit or I do it for the approval of man to meet some need in my own life supremely because I, because, you know, I was doing something because I was, I was concerned about what people would think. Get, it'll, just, it'll just get burned up. Nothing there. <clears throat> up in flames. And, and the part that is sobering is that it'll be right before Jesus between me and him and it'll be burned up and it's gonna and I'm gonna know at that time that what that his heart was to bless me and to give me rewards of what he set up for me on this world in this earth to do for him and 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 it's gonna break his heart that he couldn't reward me just like with our kids we want to bless them we want to reward them because they did the right thing and when they don't do the right thing and we're forced to, to not bless them and we have to you know not give them what we what we wanted to bless them with it hurts us and I believe we're going to see that heart of his be grieved or not be blessed because of what we, how we didn't do things the way he wanted us to do those things. And we're going to be grieved because we hurt his heart. And we're going to want to bless his heart on that day because of all that he's done for us. Everything in our hearts is going to be to want to bless his heart at that moment. 
And it's gonna and, and whatever gets fried or burned up or whatever is gonna not be able to do that, and it's gonna hurt us and hurt him. And that's not what he wants for us. So it's a sobering thing for us to think about. God's placed us in every place that he's placed us to be an influence for him, to be able to love people with his love. A disciple of Jesus Christ is doing what he does and saying what he says in response to what he's given for his glory. And everything in our life is going to be weighed at the end. And God wants to give us all the blessings and all the crowns and all the reward that he could possibly give us. So it's a very searching, sobering reminder to us. And, t- and Timothy's, what he's going to be judged over is, or what, he, you know, what, what his deal was, is about how he pastored, how he sacrificed, how he gave for the people, how he kept in the word of God, how he continued in the example that had been given before him to endure hardship and all these things. But for us, we, many of us are not, doesn't have the same calling as, as him. And we don't have the same callings. But we have a very special and unique calling. And we have to find out what that is if we don't know what that is. And be busy about it. And be doing it in love. Be doing it in a spirit-directed way. In a way that represents worship to him. And there's a timing for all those things. And discovery of what our gifts are. And you know, all, there's a bunch of different circumstances that that will dictate how much we're engaged in that at any given time and so forth. And God's patient with all of it. But I just wanted us to bring, bring us back to the reality that God's assessing our lives. This isn't just words on a page. We're really going to stand before Jesus Christ physically, personally, in his presence and give an account for our life and have to answer for everything. And, and God wants us to be able to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he wants. And so let's let these verses work in our hearts for that purpose. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for stewardship. Thank you, Lord, for how you've blessed us and how you've entrusted us with influence. Well, we want to be faithful with the influence that you've given us. We want to be an extension of you in this world. And it is sobering, Lord, for us to think that we're going to stand before you in your presence, and give an account for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would use these passages, if you're speaking to us, any of us here, to step out and to do something for you. I pray, Lord, that you give us the grace to obey that. If we've already been doing things for you, and we haven't been doing them in the right, with the right motivation, or we haven't been led by you to do them, I pray, Lord, you'd speak to us as well regarding those things. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who uniquely speaks to us and ministers to us as only he can. We want our lives to represent worship, Lord. So help us. We thank you that you're patient. We thank you that you're gracious. We thank you that you're loving. And we thank you that you, when you get us, you get a project. and You're okay with that. We thank you for that. Use these verses for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.